So last week I understand that some doubt was expressed of my actual existence. Um, and then I, yeah. Thanks, Mike. This time of year, a, a frequent little advertisement that gets put on, you know, on te- television is an M&M's ad where the the two little M&M's are walking down the hall with a plate of cookies and Santa Claus is in the room in there and they walk in and see each other and they each go, he does exist, they do exist, and then they faint. So uh, please no fainting, I do exist. And uh, so thankful for your prayers while I was gone. Um, the, uh, the therapy and all of that that uh, went through to, now just some of you just, control yourselves, to kind of rewire my brain a little bit, uh, to deal with some of the damage uh, areas, uh, seem to be uh, quite helpful and looking forward to um, more work that needs to be done. <clears throat> I'm looking at a couple of you just to just control yourselves on that. <laughs> Keep your thoughts to yourself this morning. Um, anyway, very thankful for that. And then, of course, was sick last week. It was so disappointing. I was really looking forward to being back and uh, but was able, we were able to sign in and were blessed by the service online. So uh, I was very, very thankful for that. For those of you that are online with us, we welcome you. Glad that you're here with us today also. <clears throat> so if you'll take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Luke. Luke uh, chapter 1. I'm going to begin reading at verse 67. Verse 67, I'll read on through verse 79. If you are able, I would invite you to stand with me uh, for the reading of God's holy word. Zechariah is the father of John the Baptist. And uh, we'll talk about his... uh, his role here more fully in just a moment, but his father, if we read here in verse 67, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. God adds his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Please do be seated. Now, most people forget or just don't really know about or think about this particular account 
as part of the nativity story. When we're rightly, mostly uh, fixing our attention and our thoughts upon the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and, and Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and the wise men and all of those uh, familiar characters and elements of that story. But as with most stories, um, stories do not exist in a vacuum. They do not just suddenly appear on the scene. This story of the Lord Jesus Christ and his nativity, of the coming Messiah, was something that had been foretold, something that had been, been considered, thought about, talked about, prayed about, uh, agonized over for centuries, and indeed it began, did it not, at the very fall of Adam and Eve, there in the Garden of Eden with the promise that uh, God would send uh, his servant to crush the serpent's head and be victorious over sin and death. So it should not surprise us that along the way there uh, is occasion after occasion of, I'll say, preparatory preparatory work that has been done. Uh, done through God's great acts, through different uh, miraculous events, uh, certainly through prophets and preachers and priests who came along and taught and, and exhorted the people to remember that these promises of the Messiah were very much still alive, that God had not forgotten his people. On this now, uh, on the occasion of the circumcision of John the Baptist or John the Baptizer, um, what we, what, uh, in case you're not familiar with the details of this, uh, earlier in Luke chapter 1, an angel had come to Zechariah to tell him that this was coming, that uh, a son would be born to them, a son who, and we'll look at that passage in just a little bit. But when Zechariah heard this, Zechariah was filled with doubt. He was an old man. He was wondering how this is going to happen. How is this going to take place? And immediately uh, the angel says, well, because you're doubting what God has to say to you, you're going to be silent for a time. Now, I, as I was thinking about this this week, I was thinking what it would be like for me as a minister of the gospel to have to be silent for nine months. Some of you might welcome that, but um, um, I sure wouldn't. And you can only imagine what was going through Zachariah's mind in in those nine months. He had, whether it was a, a moment of doubt, whether he was by by nature or character, a character, a person who tended to be a glass half empty kind of guy uh, or not. We're not told. But nonetheless, when he sees these things take place, uh, his wife um, conceives and they, here's a child coming. At that point, I have to imagine that Zachariah's doubts uh, are gone. And now he's filled with wonder. He's filled with a desire to worship, and he can't. 
a desire to declare and he can't. So for nine months he's been mulling over what he's going to say. And what comes out of his mouth as the Spirit of God then uh, opens his lips uh, is truly marvelous. So what the occasion is on the circumcision at that particular time, the, the official naming of the child is done. And they are expecting, as the custom was, that John would be named after his father. And so they're amazed when, when Elizabeth says, no, his, his name's going to be John. And Zechariah has to you know, write everything out now because he can't talk. He said, no, his name is John. And that final affirmation that Zacharias truly believed what God had said and that God's promises we brought about and every detail Zacharias would follow. And in that time of obedience, the Spirit of God fills him, opens his lips, and these words pour out. On this occasion, the preparations that have been going on for centuries for the coming of the Messiah come into sharp focus because without John's work, Christ's coming, particularly at this time in history there in that part of the world, without John coming, Christ's coming would have attracted no more notice than the hundreds of false messiahs that were running everywhere in the Middle East at that time. Um, and of course, there had been many that came even before Christ came and since then too. John's coming, however, is of a particular nature, and it is, it is in itself fulfilling of God's promises to his people. If you go back and you look at the various covenants of God throughout history, you will notice that in every case, uh, or I should say in many, many of the cases, the promises and the prophecies that God has given, particularly surrounding the coming of the Messiah, are validated by a child of promise somewhere. You can think about uh, Isaac, for example, uh, looking forward to uh, uh, the Messiah because it would come. The Messiah was promised to Abraham to come out of Messiah, out of Isaac, who was the child of promise. And it just continues on from there. Now, ultimately, God's covenant is validated by the, the child whose birth we celebrate at this time of year, most particularly our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But John is the precursor to the coming of our Lord. And we learn much uh, through him and through his circumstances uh, about our Lord's nature and our obligations to him. It's one of the reasons why the Lord sent prophets. You know, uh, I think sometimes we just think that, you know, if, if, if Jesus had just come and been revealed in his glory, we wouldn't have all this mess in the world today, right? We would all just believe and everything would be wonderful. You really think that's the case? I mean, you think about during the time of the Lord's earthly ministry, as he healed people, raised people from the dead, provided food for thousands out of fragments, um, 
restored sight to the blind, uh, restored strength to the lame, all these incredible things that took place, walking across the surface of the water, uh, calming the winds with a word, and yet people were still afraid, people were still in rebellion. Um, you remember the, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, and the rich man lifts up his eyes, he's in torment, begs Abraham to send Lazarus back from the dead to tell his brethren about you know, what was happening here so that they would believe. For surely if someone came back from the dead, they would believe. But God has given from the very beginning all that is necessary for us to know and to believe in. And if we don't believe in Moses and the prophets, Abraham said, if we don't believe what God has revealed, even if someone's raised from the dead, we won't believe. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and billions have died in unbelief because they would not believe in spite of something that is one of the most well-attested historical events ever to occur in history. So it's important that we understand that John's coming is not just an afterthought on God's part. Jesus would refer to John as the greatest of the prophets. And I think that in part that honor is ascribed to him because of his position as the last of the Old Testament prophets who was declaring the Messiah is coming. And then the Messiah comes. His word, if there was ever any prophet whose word could be believed, it would be John's because so quickly did what God promised come about through what John was preaching and teaching. So the Lord's provision then of a prophet, particularly this prophet, uh, John the Baptist, um, encourages us, it strengthens us uh, to know that our Lord has not left us without signs, has not left us without instruction, has not left us without guidance. Uh, the, I, I titled this A Prophecy of Faithfulness. It, it struck me just this morning, I thought I could have named it something else. As you look through this passage and you look through other passages of, of a similar character in this section here, there's a word that keeps coming up over and over again, and it's the word prepare or preparation. This could, I could have titled this a prophecy of preparation, uh, where the Lord has been preparing the way for us to, in a, in a sense, make it, uh, I hesitate to use this turn of phrase, but I'll do it anyway, and hopefully qualify it, to make it easier for us to recognize the King of Kings and Lord of Lords as he has revealed to us. Now, I, I say I hesitate because as if under, recognizing him is something related to our ability to be able to do that. I don't mean that. Um, but uh, the Lord has not put um, great obstacles in the path of his children to come to him. He's given us the signs. He's opened the door for us. And John is one of those doors that helps us to not only believe, but then to live in a way that's consistent with that belief. So let's take a look at this uh, passage then. I think we're probably only, like to, safe to say, we're, we're going to get through the first section of this. Now, the first section begins at verse 68 and runs through verse 75. 
Um, that's all one sentence. Um, I, the Apostle Paul may have studied with Zechariah. I don't know. Very long, very long sentence there. But that first section all has to do with the Lord and his worthiness of being praised. And then the second portion, which begins in verse 76 and runs through 79, he shifts focus to talk about John himself and the work that John would do. I'm going to try to get through that first section this morning, and God willing, we'll uh, take a, a closer look at John's actual ministry and his role in all of this in more detail next week. So, he begins by saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. He is saying, yes, the Lord is to be praised. Exalt him, lift up his name. And he gives all kinds of reasons here as to why the Lord is worthy of being praised. Let's look at these reasons. And they begin with the general category of his actions, and that's in verses 68 through 71. These actions are, are, are marvelous. The first one is visitation. Visitation is a term that you know, we're used to in the church. Uh, our elders do elder visitation. We come around and visit our families and all of that um, to uh, spend time and to listen and to maybe instruct or whatever is necessary at the time. The word visitation is a, is a wonderful word. It's a very pastoral word. Um, sometimes I think uh, we're familiar with the, the use of the term visit. Someone paid him a visit. That we have that phrase. To pay somebody a visit can be a negative thing. <laughs> um, it can be a fearful thing. Uh, it can be uh, what we're talking about, I, I, I visited so-and-so. Um, sometimes it means we stopped by for a word or two. Sometimes it means we did a phone call or we did something else. But the word here has the idea of to go see someone or to care for someone. It's also, interestingly enough, the root of it is related to the same word in Greek that we get our word uh, bishop from. Uh, it has to do with uh, oversight. So it's a very pastoral term here. Figuratively, we might, uh, we might say in our context, uh, kind of looking in on someone. You know, uh, we have a um, sick relative or sick neighbor or something. Uh, we might swing by just to see how they're doing. We look in on them, see if they have any particular needs that we can help out with whether it's a meal or you know, some other physical thing or whatever. You're all familiar with this. You've all done this uh, for each other. And I know several of you have done this uh, for me even just recently and have, been, have blessed our family in this way. Um, the uh, Lord Jesus uses this same term when he talks about uh, those that, uh, you know, if you, if you fed the hungry or you've, come to me in prison, that sort of thing. Uh, you know, you, you did all these things to me, welcome. And they, people would say, well, when did we do all that stuff for you, Lord? And so, well, as much as you did those for others, you, know, you did them unto me. But so when you, that word that says when you, you came to me in prison, the verb that's there is the same verb. You looked in on me. 
Um, we're not used to thinking about that in prison here. Normally, in our society, when we put something somebody in prison, as a general rule, we're not thinking about going and visiting them. We don't have access to them. We All of their needs are taken care of by the state. They're just there until they're done. But in these days, if you were in prison, you didn't eat if your friends didn't come and bring you food. You didn't have clothing and blankets if if your friends didn't come and provide those for you. And you, they had access to come in and provide those things, checked, of course. Um, but nonetheless, there was that kind of thought. If any of you have ever traveled overseas and ever had the joy of being in a hospital in a third world country. Um, a hospital is basically a place where you go lay down. Um, Everyone, if something really drastic happens, a nurse or a doctor may see to you, but the rest of your care is taken care of, is, is undertaken by your family and friends who bring food, who bring your linens, who, who change your dressings, who do all those kinds of things. This is the idea of this visitation that our Lord has done. When did this take place? Well, a, 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 just a... a first place to where we could go would be found in the book of Exodus chapter 3 where we read Yahweh God of your fathers the God of Abraham of Isaac and of Jacob appeared to me saying I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt here Zechariah in his his um, ponderings for nine months about the greatness of God and what God has done, understands that God has not left his people in bondage. The bondage of God's people in Egypt certainly is a vivid picture of the bondage of sin. And the rest of scriptures bear this out, that that's part of the intentionality of that whole event. That that we're bound in sin and slavery to sin and the Lord delivers us through miraculous means and brings us into our inheritance. It's a wonderful picture of the deliverance of our God. But it began not with um, um, Israel being worthy. We noted that if you, if you remember, you will note in your mind that uh, when when Israel was, was reminded of who their God was, they weren't really receptive. I mean, they cried out to him, but it was more like a, in, in complaint, like if you're really real, why don't you do something? Not really cries out of faith. But the Lord remembers his covenant, and re, with, remembered his covenant with them, and he visited them. He looked in on them. Not just with a, <clears throat> oh, well, I guess they're fine. I'll go do something else but no, with an intent to care for and oversee and deliver. And this visitation is something that certainly Israel experienced as a nation, but that each Christ follower has also experienced as the Lord looks upon us and delivers us in the time of our spiritual darkness and infirmity and gives us gives us. Faith grants us repentance, pours out his grace upon us as he visits, cares for, looks in upon us, and oversees our deliverance.
And he did, he goes on, in case we are missing that deliverance aspect, the, this second action that's mentioned here is that he has visited and redeemed his people to, bought back, to, to buy them back from slavery. <clears throat> I love the structure of the original language here. Uh, it, it's, it would be very difficult and awkward to translate it uh, in English, it would just sound funny to us. But literally, uh, the word, th there's two words that speak of being redeemed here. <clears throat> the, the word for rede redemption uh, or liberation uh, is there, but in front of it is the word, a form of the word to do. If you translate it literally, it would be... Um, he has visited us and done redemption. It's accomplished redemption that God has done. It is, uh, it, it's, we would, it's a phrase, it's a done deal. It's that kind of idea here. It's an absolute, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a phrase in the original language that suggests that the redemption is absolute, it's certain, it cannot be undone. And I love the certainty of that. And Zechariah is, is rejoicing and noting that God should be blessed because he has certainly liberated us. He has accomplished it. It has been done. And um, if you're like me, you're, maybe your mind is springing forward uh, about 33 years to the cross at uh, Calvary when Jesus cries out what among other things it is finished yeah it's done it's done um, no accident in those words and just in case you're still missing the idea of how strong and how certain this deliverance is and this redemption is verses 69 and uh, through uh, 71 speak of his strong salvation. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. This strong salvation. Now, why do I say strong? It's because of the word horn. Uh, in the scriptures, um, the, a horn, a horn of salvation, the horn uh, is something that has to do with strength. It's a, hor a horn is associated with, with might or power. And you see that through the prophets, and it's carried through right into here. Now note that this salvation is brought through the line of David. <clears throat> Again, this, this is really, you've you got to put yourself in Zechariah's shoes. Okay, He's had an angel come to him nine months prior, said, you're going to have a son, and your son is going to be the one who is preparing the way for the Messiah to come. Now, all of you who are dads, I want you to think about sons. Okay? Think about your sons. I don't know if you're like most dads, and I hope, I hope you are proud of your sons. If you had someone 
an angel come to you and say, your son is going to be the precursor to the Messiah? Oh, oh. oh yeah. That's pretty incredible. Would it not be a temptation to exalt your son into the place of honor rather than the one for whom he's supposed to be preparing? Oh, yeah, it would be. It would be. But Zacharias, by God's grace, does not do that. He acknowledges that his son, who is of the tribe of Levi, not of the tribe of Judah, not of the house of David, Zacharias starts first, not with praise of his son, not with even talking about his son yet, but just fixing his eyes upon God, who is going to bring his Messiah through the house of David, through the tribe of Judah. Zacharias knows those prophecies and his hopes are fixed in what God has said and he is not interested in supplying a substitute. John, when John assumed his office and his role there in the wilderness, carried on that same mentality that he was not the one who was prophesied to come as the Messiah, but he was the the one to prepare the way. Uh, and John said, well, you know, I'm not even worthy to tie his sandals. So John learned well from his father. Um, and I presume even through all of his growing up period, I can't imagine that Zacharias did not uh, mention to John what uh, and prepare him for the work that he was going to be doing. So... Here through, the, through David's line, and of course, we know that that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, this salvation, again, was not something that uh, just happened out of the thin air, but this is a matter of fulfilling uh, the promises that were foretold by the prophets there in verse 70, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. If you take a... Just one example, Jeremiah chapter 23, which I expect is probably a familiar passage, at least something that we hear more often this time of year. Jeremiah 23, beginning at verse 5, Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. Yahweh is our righteousness. Yahweh is our righteousness. And many, many other passages that speak of the coming Messiah through David's line. Zacharias is firmly uh, uh, fixed um, in the, the scriptures and is bound by them and rejoices in them and recognize that this strong salvation that will certainly be accomplished is something that, um, again, has been foretold uh, for a very long time and now is rejoicing that it's beginning to just uh, burst uh, forth on the scene, uh, beginning here with John and his preparation. And this salvation is not just a matter of... of uh, personal um, redemption, though there, that aspect is there, but Zacharias is also recognizing that part of the promises 
that God has given to his people was deliverance from their enemies all around as they were established in inheritance uh, that God had given for them. And of course, now they're, they're in the land, but they're not free. Uh, they are under the domination of Rome, uh, in, in spite of the Pharisees who would insist uh, to Jesus that they've never been slaves to anybody, which is one of the stupider things that anybody's ever said. Um, as they're walking under the, the Roman uh, eagle as, they're, uh, as uh, the one to whom they are accountable. Um, Zacharias is expressing that God's deliverance is going to be full, complete. Um, the, there will be no, no enemy uh, left uh, that can stand in the way of God's people, including and up to um, our adversary, the devil, as Peter speaks of that in 1 Peter 5. Your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And yet we know that Christ has crushed his head and he is ultimately already defeated. Now, I want you to remember something. And think about this in the context of what we're looking at here. Jesus has not been born yet. Let that sink in for a second. Christ has not been born yet. There's been no angels. There's been no heavenly hosts. There's been no shepherds. There's been, you know, uh, none, none of that. The wise men would be a couple of years off yet before that, uh, that event took place. So think about this, these words coming out of the mouth of a, of a man who formerly doubted that what God had said was going to happen would happen. Now, Zacharias demonstrates by the grace of God, he is confident that this child of promise, the one that, that has been promised to him, his son, indicates the certainty of Messiah to come. You know, we read these pages and it's like, you know, we read, well, this happened and then this happened and it jumps ahead to, you know, 30 years in advance and, it, and we just put all these things together. Zacharias had to wait nine months before he could even talk. Now, as he sees all this happen, he knows that God's promise is certain, and yet there will be decades before John's work actually begins. And he doesn't know, I'm, I, I'm sure that he knows just because of Elizabeth and her connection with Mary and so on. I, I, I have no doubt that Zacharias under now fully understands that the child that Mary is carrying is the one. And yet all of that is going to take decades for it to, you know, to be brought to fruition, to be seen in clarity. So for Zacharias to pray what he prays is a gift of God's grace to be able, as he's filled with the Spirit, to be able to declare that what God has promised is actually coming about it is absolutely certain. It is a strong salvation. He will perform all his holy will.
Now, those are the actions that Zacharias speaks of. But he goes on beyond just the actions and delves a little bit into the mind of God a bit as he explores not just what God has done, but what God's purposes are. And that's what we see in verses 72 through 75. A couple of things here uh, that Zacharias develops. Uh, So we would be delivered, uh, saved from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us. First purpose, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. Now, in if we were reading in Hebrew, we would expect to find the Hebrew word uh, chesed in here, which speaks of mercy or covenant loyalty, sometimes uh, um, uh, translated in the Old Testament as steadfastness, uh, often as mercy. But that idea is what Zacharias is building on here as he refers to uh, the Greek word mercy and, and makes it absolutely clear about God's remembering his holy covenant. God's first purpose, in the, as far as Zacharias is speaking of, of it here, in all of these actions, in visiting his people and redeeming us and granting us this strong salvation, his first purpose is to demonstrate his loyalty to his own self and his own covenant. Now, that, um, I, I don't want to um, minimize his love for us, the purpose to show his love for us. We, we have that spoken of, right, uh, in other places as well. But sometimes we, we want to go there first. Well, God saved me because he loved me. He loved me before the foundation of the world. He chose me before the foundation of the world. Absolutely, yes, he put his love upon me. He did all of that. But ultimately, we are not the movers and shakers of God's purposes. He is himself self-motivated, complete, contained within himself, and he operates in a manner that exalts himself first and foremost as the prime mover, creator, being of all the universe. Infinite in power, in judgment, in wisdom, in every way. God's first motivation is to glorify his own name because it is worthy of being glorified. And along the way, one of the ways that he does that is to place his love and compassion upon us. But he made a promise to the Son from before the foundation of the world that the Son would have a people a bride for himself and put into place the plan to bring that about. And he has been faithful in every respect to that covenant ever since. The word mercy here, interestingly, to where it says to show mercy, to show the mercy, two words in Greek. You remember what I talked about earlier about that? Um, accomplished redemption it's the same exact construction same uh, same verb from the verb to do to do mercy to accomplish mercy is the actual construction here in other words he loyally and certainly performed what he promised to the fathers God 
is true to himself and his promises. He has kept his word. And for that, we need to be praising him as he has shown, demonstrated, accomplished that covenant loyalty. He's left no part of that of his promises undone. And, and then it says to remember his covenant. Now this word remember, I already referred to this earlier when I spoke of, of the nation of Israel as they were in bondage in Egypt and God remembered them as, as uh, were reminded there in the book of Exodus. God remembered his covenant to them. Not that he had, oh, forgotten about it. Oh, you know, I, I mislaid that thing. I, didn't, I don't know where that covenant went to, but oh, here it is. What do you know? It's not that kind of remember. It's just at, noted that it, that covenant existed and he therefore acted in, the, in due course um, in accordance with what he had set forth. Again, I want you to think about the historical context of what Zacharias is saying. The cultural context in which he lived was what are sometimes referred to as the 400 silent years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. But only silent because there's no inspired um, a revelation being given through any uh, legit prophets um, or other servants of God. The, Israel was um, in the midst, in that 400 years, it was actually really not very silent. It was 400 years of war. It was 400 years of oppression. It was 400 years of, of um, revolution. There was no actual prophetic voice that could bring comfort or correction or direction. There were lots of false prophets out there, lots of them. Lots of them claiming to be true prophets of God, but they were not. And so it was a time of confusion. It was a time of darkness. It was a time of, of uncertainty. I mean, we can think about our own our own time today, where we have many ungodly voices trying to convince everyone that they're from God, and so we have a great deal of theological and moral and social uncertainty because um, without vision, without the oracle, without uh, paying attention to what God has said, the people cast off restraint. And that's where we're at. Well, it was that way then too. So when Zacharias is speaking here of being delivered from his and our enemies, and that God is remembering his covenant, does it ever seem to you, as I'm sure it did to those folks then, that God seems to have forgotten his covenant? You know, it's not, it's not uh, uh, any accident that within the Psalms and then um, later on in the book of Revelation, you have this thought of, Lord, how long? How long? And in the book of Revelation, John says, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We just want this misery over. We want to be with you. 
At times it can feel like the Lord is far from us, but he is not. He remembers his covenant. He has not forgotten us. And that the sending of John and to prepare the way for the Messiah is to help us to remember that God remembers. To help us to uh, take comfort in the fact that God is accomplishing his purposes in spite of how it may appear to us in the frailty and the limitations of our ability to perceive all that God is doing. But his purposes go beyond his own character uh, and revealing that, which as marvelous as that is, there's more. And that is that he, he sends John, just as he sent other prophets before, to prepare the way, not just so that we would have an intellectual knowledge of, yeah, okay, the Messiah is coming, and yep, I can identify who he is, and isn't that great? Pat myself on the back that I can perceive that. No, uh, notice what it says here. Um, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered in the condition now of having been delivered from our enemies, having been redeemed out of the bondage of sin, having been redeemed from the power of the devil to live in newness of life. In that condition then, the purpose to grant us that we, for the purpose that we would serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness. Part of the reason God sends us the, the prophets and the apostles to give us his word is to help us, to enable us to serve him in a worthy manner. Now, it begins with revelation. It's what he has sworn to our father Abraham, what God has revealed in the past. God doesn't uh, make up new stuff as he goes along. It's all the same old plan that just keeps getting unfolded and we see its richness unfolded more and more and more through the word. But all that he has done is in accordance with his word. Every bit of it. So that we might serve him faithfully. And let's take a look at um, the manner of our service here just very briefly as we go through this. In 74a, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies... To serve him freely, to serve him freely. Our enemies, uh, for the nation of Israel, they were thinking a little bit more socio-political types of enemies. But uh, we tend to think more in terms of spiritual kinds of enemies. Uh, think of Romans chapter 6, where Paul speaks of, uh, our, because we're united in his death, we're united in his resurrection. Right? And then it goes on in Romans 6 and verse 7 to say, for, the, for one who has died has been set free from sin. And if you go on further in the book of Romans chapter 8, Paul says, for the law of the spirit of life in Jesus Christ has made me free from the law of sin and death. You and I should be praising God that we are not in bondage to our sins. Now, if you still walk in bondage uh, and, and uh, live a life that is uh, 
full of sin and uh, that's your pattern of life and that's where you want to be. Uh, a profession of faith in Christ is rather empty um, because if, you've, if you're truly in Christ, you've been set free from that. doesn't mean you'll never sin again as we struggle in our frailty. Uh, but it's not something that we should be comfortable in or feel joy about or seek after. Um, it's something that we would uh, uh, loathe and hate because ye that love the Lord hate evil. So we are free in Christ to serve him. And that is an incredible joy. Um, the, uh, this, this goes on in this freedom because we've been delivered that we can serve him then without fear, serve him fearlessly. Uh, Paul in, in his letter to the Philippian church in chapter one <clears throat> was speaking about his being imprisoned and the challenges that were there because of the gospel and the oppression, the afflictions that were there. But he, he says in, I think it's in verse 14, he says that uh, nevertheless, in spite of being in prison, he says, we are bold to speak the word without fear. There's, there are many things in this life that cause us to be fearful. You see the, the powers that be, that threaten, that seem to have all the cards stacked in their favor. And we think even of this, uh, the matter of the, uh, the whole library thing going on here in our county. And, you know, it, we're faced with um, what looks like a machine that is moving to accomplish uh, the, the perverse agenda of the wicked. And yet, in spite of that, the Lord is working. Um, they, the, the, agenda, the agenda train has been slowed down. And in fact, it's had to reverse direction in a couple of areas, and there's more work that needs to be done. But if we sit back um, and think, well, you know, I don't know, I don't want to speak up. Somebody might think ill of me, something about whatever. This is not, the spirit of fear is not something that should be indicative of us. It's not something that God, uh, it's not of God to live fearfully. If we're in the Lord Jesus Christ, because of his deliverance, we've been delivered from the hand of our enemies. It's not we will be delivered. We've been delivered from them. So live and serve fearlessly. Speak the word boldly without fear. Confront the world around you without fear for the sake of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And serve him in holiness, verse 75. In holiness, it says, that idea of holiness, of being... Uh, set apart no double mindedness when we're delivered we don't have to be well we must not be we should not be but we certainly don't have to be well, wishy-washy and back and forth and now one day serving him and now another day well maybe not so much you know whatever single minded I'm not talking about being obnoxious I'm not talking about being being arrogant, I'm talking about being single-mindedly committed and forthright and determined to serve the God who has redeemed us, who has given us our strong salvation, and to serve him righteously. 
according to his standards. It's a, uh, there it says righteousness has to do with adhering to a standard. We live according to his standards. We cannot do this without his deliverance. We cannot do this without our Messiah. And yet, uh, John has been given, uh, Zacharias rightly notes this, that, that on this occasion, this is just another, uh, another opportunity for us to recognize that, that God is serious about calling his people to walk in fellowship with him according to his standards. And the Messiah is the one who accomplishes our redemption so that we can do that. So in, with lack of fear, with, with freedom and with joy and being set apart unto him, let's live righteously whole, in a holy and faithful manner before the Lord. And then finally, to do so before him all our days. Now, uh, sometimes I think we look at serving the Lord and we get pretty excited about serving the Lord and we have our moments of conviction and our moments of determination, right? And uh, we, can, we, we hang in there for a day or two or a week or two or a month or two and then we slip and we slide and we struggle and we have uh, uh, our, our times of failure. It'd be wonderful if we could just say, well, you know, I'm going to serve the Lord faithfully now and I'm, I'm good. Don't have any more. I don't have to worry about sin anymore. I don't have to worry about failing anymore. I don't have to worry about weakness anymore. I don't have to worry about fear anymore. Um, but that is not what the scriptures teach us. They, they, they describe a, a, a battle, right? a battle that requires some armor, a battle that requires determination, a, re a battle that requires discernment uh, that, and faith and sacrifice because the, the, the flesh and the spirit are at war against each other and they will be until we are finally and completely uh, perfected as we see Jesus will be like him for we shall see him as he is. But until that day, we have these reminders through his word, through the prophets that he has sent, uh, that, that Jesus the Christ is real, he's genuine, he's the son of God, he's accomplished our redemption and therefore we do not need to live in defeat and doubt, but rather to live with with joy and confidence consistently before him, growing from grace to grace and glory to glory as we are sanctified and become more and more worthy of our Savior by his grace. This is an incredible prophecy that reminds us of this marvelous salvation that our Lord has brought about through the sending of the Messiah. And to note from Zechariah's tone here, that it is all actually already a done deal. Redemption done. Mercy done. But he's prepared the way for us to be able to see it and see it more clearly and therefore rejoice and have more reason than ever to praise our matchless God for his faithfulness and for his preparation of his people.
Again, God willing, we'll take a look at John and his ministry a little bit more next week, uh, as the Lord allows. Uh, But for now, I think we'll wrap up here and uh, move on into to the Lord's table where we celebrate that accomplished redemption yet again. We bow with me, please, in prayer. Thank you, Father, for your mercy that you have accomplished, for the redemption that you have accomplished. You've shown these things, you've brought them about through our Lord Jesus Christ, and you've not left us, Lord, uh, in the dark about this. Indeed, John, like all the other prophets before him, are your flashlights to shine the light on on your truth so that we can't miss them. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would move in our hearts to walk by faith, not by sight, to rejoice in what you've told us, to rejoice in what you've accomplished, and to look forward to the culmination of all things in your good time. In Christ's name we pray.